Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And as always, I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute and a practicing constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. That's right, David. Turns out the LexRex Institute's not as opinionated as we are. But what the LexRex Institute <laughs> is, is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. So if you'd like to learn more about what we do or make a donation, we'd really appreciate that one, go ahead and visit our website, www.lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. As Alexis de Tocqueville noted, though, in the U.S., legal issues invariably tend to become political ones. And today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Our name, Lex Rex, is Latin for the law is king, because we believe that that's the only appropriate king in America, is the law. We have no king besides our Constitution, and we are dedicated to upholding that, and this podcast is part of that effort. So without further ado, I say that a lot on this podcast. Let's launch into today's yeah. subjects. We've got a lot for you guys to look at today. Yeah. All right. So first so we, up. Oh, oh we are going to do we we got a few subjects for you guys today. Before we jump into the first one, David, our subjects yeah. are well, I don't actually remember. It's been a while since I looked at this. <laughs> well, we're going to hit a couple of quick things. And since our main topic is probably going to have us run pretty long and we're trying, as we promised, to cut the time down a little bit on the total runtime, we're just going to be looking at a couple quick things, what I'm calling a special report it's, on pettiness and the law. Our um, main topic so, is French again, though, isn't it? So we can count in metric hours. I, you've used that joke before. I still don't recommend that. That's, you know, the metric. Oh, that wasn't as a joke, you, David. Okay. I, I'm always told the metric system's better. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, if you really want to have a 100-minute hour, be my guest, but not on my time. We're going to stick to Imperial <laughs> slash just what everyone does because no one actually uses metric time. Fair anyway. enough. All right, so what are we calling this? We're calling this Report on Pettiness and the Law. Yeah, just that's a loose thematic tie between a couple of things that I just thought were interesting and amusing enough to talk about. One of which you brought to my attention, one of which I shared with you. But so do we have start... any broader point here? Like, is, is there anything that pettiness <laughs> has to do with what we're trying to teach? Uh, I guess generally that you probably shouldn't use the courts as a venue for your own personal pettiness. Although in the first case, it's not. Well, it's it's more just amusing than anything else. Um <laughs> So we're going to start by taking a look at a little video that I'll share with you in a second. And, you know, I don't really know exactly what the broader context is here. Apparently, the guy who is involved in this is I, representing I watched the video. Alex I Jones. couldn't figure it out either. It's yeah. Alex Jones' lawyer, so I don't know how much context yeah. there or maybe I, the context is infinitely deep. Maybe it gets into, you know, the multiple dimensions and the higher dimensional so beings and so, and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, as as I understand, because, you know, there was actually breaking news on on this particular court case earlier today where apparently 
Jones's lawyer inadvertently leaked the entire contents of his cell phone to the opposing counsel, and it contained Ooh, a lot of documents. How does that somebody al- inadvertently do that? I don't know, but allegedly it contained stuff that they were supposed to have turned over in discovery and yeah. didn't. So <laughs> there's, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to. As opposing counsel, if somebody sends you evidence that they were not supposed to send, you're supposed to delete that and disregard it. So I yeah, guess they didn't I, do that. They called him on his blunder and actually saw there were things he hadn't hadn't produced. Apparently, you know, and I, I'm not sure how any of that actually plays out at this phase, because also apparently this is all stemming from the penalty phase of a civil trial. So, you know, they're just at this point, I that guess, trying to determine on that long. the damages. I, do, I don't know a lot about this, but from what I do know, I is, haven't been following the case at all. So I've got nothing to contribute here, David. Yeah. What I do know is that his lawyer displayed a, a pretty severe lack of decorum. I think you maybe you, you forgot you to, on all of this, our but. emails. We have that footer that says this message together with any attachments is intended only for the use of the individual or entity, which it is addressed and may contain information that is legally privileged, confidential and or exempt from disclosure. Maybe he forgot to have that all over uh, his cell possibly. phone. So they got to possibly. But to refresh you. Here's what went down here. For those of you who are who are listening to this, you, you're not going to sounds that. like a cacophony. <laughs> Yeah, apparently he, the lawyer for Mr. Jones and the lawyer for the other party got into some kind of altercation after, you know, the working day was done. So the, the judge had left the courtroom, but um, that's generally just, when it happens. Yeah, people, yeah. Are, people are on much better behavior when judges are in the room, believe it that, or not. That makes a lot of sense. But Jones's lawyer, I guess, subtly, sort of, because the other guy seemed to be looking away when he did it. But he flipped off the other attorney in the courtroom on camera. And that just that just didn't seem like. The best yeah, behavior. Well, maybe he's not. This was in Texas, right? I believe so. Yeah. See, California's oath of office now, as of the past several years, has an oath that you will uphold. You know, it's obviously it has to defend the Constitution of the United States and state of California. And then it adds to that that you'll do so with civility and decorum, I think, or some such language. Maybe Texas doesn't have that. Well, maybe not. But in any case, you can find uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to this article that that's covering this in the podcast description. But, you know, if you if you have a spare like minute or so, it's it's an interesting watch of sorts. But and speaking of people who've recently flipped people off, our next subject is Linda Sanchez, who after at the congressional baseball game a few weeks ago, maybe about a week ago now, apparently flipped off the Republican senators at that game. I had or not heard about this. Whichever. Yeah, she flipped off. Yeah. So and she's actually the author of the next bill that we're discussing. But I guess in both instances, sort of the lesson is here. Look, people can do a lot of things to provoke you. But if you respond by flipping somebody off, that's a very visible, obvious thing that you're doing. It doesn't actually at the end of the day matter what they did to provoke you because nobody sees that. Yeah. Just don't flip people off. It doesn't. Yeah. No, especially in a legal context or even if it's in baseball, you don't do it. Anyway, Linda Sanchez, famous, uh, famous user of the middle finger, also has <laughs> a legislation pending. And David, what is this legislation? Well, she introduced a bill that would prevent any president who has been impeached twice. Now, bear in mind, there is one individual thus far in American history to whom this condition applies, but it would prevent any such individual from being buried in Arlington National Cemetery or from being commemorated by a memorial, a statue, or any other kind of display that's paid for with federal funds. Any guesses who that one individual might be? Well, you know, three guesses. It's in recent memory. I think, you know, average political memory, they say, is 18 months. I 
We're still we're still inside that, right? If only barely. Just, no, um, I think we're just outside. No, that just now, outside huh? it. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so of people course, may have forgotten. But anyway, the person to whom that pertains is, of course, none other than the 45th president of the United States, my former client, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> so you may remember our episode a few weeks back when we talked about the Declaration of Independence. One of the things we discussed was bills of attainder, mm-hmm. which are basically bills that name somebody by name and punish them as a consequence of being whoever they are. This is awfully close to a bill of attainder. Yeah. In fact, I think and, you could make a very plausible argument that it is one. Yeah. And frankly, love him, hate him, be indifferent toward him. You know, who cares? This is a pretty egregious waste of congressional time to introduce a bill like this. <laughs> and, you know, it's well, they just, didn't do this. They'd just be doing something like, I don't know, something else stupid. Well, but that's the thing that drives me crazy, though, is, you know, all of the these recent Supreme Court cases that have come down limiting the power of executive agencies to unilaterally make yeah, law. They, they keep everybody keeps pushing things back to Congress. You know that was actually a lot of what Trump did during his administration. You know, he kept saying that's not any of my business. Talk to Congress, yeah, which presidents but, never say. But Congress <laughs> just says, you know, what, what do you want us to do? Well, we're going to make it illegal to bury Donald Trump at Arlington. Yeah, which and, don't you but, have to? Don't you have to be a member of the armed services to be buried in Arlington? I. You know, I have no idea. I don't know what the regulations are around that. But all, all I meant, though, to, to Well, I to actually say, found um, them. I have them right here. And it says, at Arlington National Cemetery, you must be either a member of the armed forces or a retired member of the armed forces, or that's just other kinds of members of the armed forces, or <laughs> family members of people who are in the armed forces. I don't know. Does commander-in-chief count as being a that's member of the That's what I was going to ask. I don't know. But... Anyway, but as far as Congress, you know, wasting its time, otherwise, I just want to note the irony that one of the common refrains that was heard when those decisions came down that, you know, placed limits on OSHA or the EPA or SEC or whatever was always, well, Congress can't possibly manage all of this workload, but apparently they have time to do this. Well, that's why they have to do important things (laughs) like keeping any statues to Donald Trump from being built. Yeah. By the way, this fun fact Bills of attainder is not the only reason this is unconstitutional. Obviously, the Constitution prescribes a very specific punishment to impeachment. And it, in fact, can be the only punishment for impeachment. Anyone know what that yeah. is? Removal from office. Removal from office. Yeah, you can't yeah. add additional punishments for impeachment, even if it's getting impeached twice. So this would be unconstitutional, <laughs> doubly if she'd consulted with, like, a high school civic student. I was going to say lawyer, but she doesn't need to do that. If she consulted with a high school civic student, she probably would have known that. Could have saved Congress a lot of time. But anyway, yeah. that is a bill that Congress is currently looking at. Yeah. You know, so and- I was going to mention the, the middle finger thing, because we're on the subject of middle fingers. David, you might remember this. A couple of years ago, there was a news story that came out about a group of judges who were attending a conference in, I think, Indianapolis. <laughs> uh, that sounds and about right, yeah. for whatever reason, decided to rove around in a car and got very drunk, and I guess got in a fist fight with somebody. I, shame it wasn't a gavel fight, but <laughs> I do. That, that I do remember an, that. That was a very amusing story. That one's worth looking into. Uh, I think I, we ought to discuss that in greater length in one of our podcasts. That's fair. I, I, for one, continued to live in fear of the roving judge gang. But yeah, yeah. I mean that's horrifying, right? They come and beat <laughs> you with their gavels, and yeah, well, and you know they they'd look very intimidating wearing those robes at night. You know, I can't um, imagine them not wearing them. I mean, they probably <laughs> weren't, realistically speaking, when they're going through White Castle. But I can't imagine them not. Yeah, that's right. It was in a White Castle parking lot, if I remember correctly. That's right. 
Anyway. I think yeah, they, they we, first we went through the drive-thru and didn't pay for their food, if I recall correctly. <laughs> we should revisit this at some point. So save some of these details. It's one of my but favorite stories, like, ever. Because It's pretty good. It's pretty I good. I appear in front of judges a lot, and it's very incongruous to imagine them that way. Yeah. Anyway, with that, with that said, we should probably get into our main topic, which is going to be, you know, we're continuing our series comparing the early years of the American Republic with the first attempt at a French Republic. And this week we're going to be talking about the proposed French constitution, why it collapsed, and why it ended in what they call the reign of terror. So my, my gosh, David, I had never read this constitution before. Yeah. Why did you pick this? This is just, this is nuts. <laughs> I mean, this is the craziest constitution I've ever read. This can't yeah, have been no, their best attempt. In fact, I know they had a different one in 1791, the one that was constitutional mm -hmm. monarchy. That one wasn't yeah. like this, was it? No, that one probably would have been significantly better. Problem this is one that gets an F as far as constitutions <laughs> go. Now, I, I get that it was never ratified. But you look at like James Madison's original draft of our constitution, which was largely formulated before he even went to the convention. This thing yeah. is totally nuts. I mean, there's blatant contradictions in it. There's things that are not described in any way. I mean, yeah, powers. No, are... it's 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 a huge mess. Among other things, why does this thing? Why are we reading this, David? This was never well, implemented. Is this, <laughs> is this just to make my hair fall out? Why are we reading? Sort of, this? yeah. Mostly, it's a uh, it's. To parallel what we were talking about last week in in, in terms of America, the Articles of Confederation sort of the I first knew it, attempt. I knew it. So I figured yeah, my, my main complaint about Articles of Confederation was that the Constitution's organized into first three articles or three branches, first branch legislative, second executive, yep. third judicial. And I figured, you know, he's he's putting this one in here to show, ha ha, you, you, want, you want a Constitution organized that way? Well, here you go. <laughs> it doesn't do much good, does it? That was your no. goal, wasn't it, David? I mean, uh, not probably that specifically, but to because it, it is or it's it's got the organization right. I mean, it's very clear they copy in our constitution in terms of their structure. Yeah, but but in terms of the provisions, it's it's why and you know you you brought up the Constitution of 1791, which I've never read the exact provisions of that, but you know one of the advantages I think that that one has is it has an actual identifiable executive in the king who, you know, inconveniently at this point, by the time they're proposing the constitution of 1793, they've put to death. Um, and in this one, yeah. rather so than- So this is a Republican constitution. I, I believe yeah. probably the second national Republican constitution in the world, if I'm not mistaken. You know, there may have been, no, I, I doubt there would have been. This is probably the second written Republican constitution for a nation that's in the history yeah, of the world. That's probably correct. I'm thinking the only other, you know, with the provision ours, ours that has to be- the first, of course. Yeah. With the provision that has to be written, I think that's almost certainly true. And national, because obviously our states had Republican constitutions. Right, right. But in, you know, depending on how you want to think about the Dutch Republic, because it did have- pretty strong elements. They did of not have a written constitution. Right. It was in, in, in any case it was, it was unwritten. So yeah, it, with the, yeah, with the so, condition that it's written, that's yeah, probably so true. This is a, you know, David uh, introduced me to a term that I love, which he, it's, it's fail son, <laughs> uh, which is one word, F A I L S O N. And I, originally he used it to me in describing, well, the son of a certain president of the United States. But basically, it's, it's when an apple falls far indeed from the tree, largely because it can sort of use its father's credibility to prop up its success. Yeah. 
and you know, Sardorov generally just kind of drag down their father, make their father worse, while their father does everything in his power to support. I mean, I'm defining it poorly. Um, <laughs> maybe you can do a little better, David. But would it be fair to say that the Constitution, the French Constitution of 1793, is the fail son of the American Constitution? Yeah, probably you could say that. You know, and <laughs> you might you may also want to add in that it's a little more remotely, I guess sort of the the failed grandson of the British Constitution which is as we've discussed mostly unwritten, but there are some ideas that I think probably they tried to draw from Britain as well and failed to do. But what I find so hilarious, I, I'd never, I've read a lot of the history around this. I've never actually mm -hmm. read it prior to this podcast. I actually had to cram before we filmed today. <laughs> uh, but I've heard people comment on it all the time. And it's, it's so hilarious because the French were so eager to get approval from different people. You know, they asked Governor yeah. Morris, and they, which, you know, very famous founding father wrote the preamble to our constitution. And he's like, no, it's dreadful. I hate it. They ask Edmund Burke and he says, no, it's the worst. I hate it. It's terrible. It's a terrible <laughs> constitution. Everybody they ask yeah. just says that it's the worst. And all of those people, I, I don't know, regret to inform you or, well, I have to inform you at least. We're right. Yeah. So let's take a look <laughs> at the French Constitution of 1793. Now, a little, little bit of history. Why was this never ratified? Well, yeah, I, I actually, I'm not sure that that's the correct terminology to use because I'm not sure. Adopt it then. Yeah, certainly, certainly never actually implemented, certainly never actually even tried to be implemented. As far as I know, the only mechanism they had for approving of a new constitution was just for their, essentially their legislature to vote on it, which happened. They voted on it. They approved it. And then the, the deadline came around for when they were supposed to actually start using it, which meant that the current legislature should have dissolved itself. Uh -huh. They just didn't. You know, have, having, <laughs> a, having a committee of executives doesn't help with that. No, not at all. So, yeah, you know, said, the national you're not going to have a transition in forms of government very quickly or well. No. So at, at this point, the National Assembly, which we talked about previously, has gone on to call itself the National Convention to mark the basically to mark the transition into it being a republic. They were supposed to so dissolve then themselves. they actually they, they did de jure implement this constitution. It was just never followed. Well, no, 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 no. You, see, here's what you're missing. There was an unconstitutional republic prior to the attempt to implement this. They were like, we're a republic uh -huh. now, but we don't have a constitution. Um, okay, that so they put the cart before the horse a little bit then. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're legally a republic, even though there is no law to codify that. Oh, let's slap something together. Here's a, you know, More here's a piece of string. Here, here's, um, you know, here's a rock. Here's a... More or less. But so anyway, the National Convention... And then just kind of slap is, it together and we got a constitution now. Yeah. So the National Convention, which is its new name, used to be the National Assembly votes on this, they're going to implement it. And then the time comes and they're like, you know what? We're at war, which at this point they were, you know, when they started imprisoning the king and making noise about executing him, a bunch of other countries around them started to get a little nervous about what that might entail. So they're in a state of war with several other countries. They're also dealing with... Well, which, huge... by the way, that plays into one of my favorite parts of this constitution, which is toward the very end. It doesn't have articles, so I'm going to have to just sort of read the section <laughs> heading to you. On relations with well, of the French Republic with foreign nations, the French people uh -huh. are friends and natural allies of all free peoples. Yeah, they do not interfere with the government of other nations, nor do they permit <laughs> other nations to interfere in theirs. And then it goes on. But they do give asylum to foreigners who, in the name of liberty, are banished from their homelands and refuse and refuse it to tyrants. Yeah, well, they do not we'll make peace it. with an enemy who is occupying their territory. So I, I found that hilarious because they say, you know, we're totally neutral. We're not going to take sides in foreign conflicts, but 
Actually, we are because we have to decide who's considered to be uh, a, a somebody friend, who's a in the name of liberty versus yeah. who's a tyrant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> also in that bit about sort of providing asylum for any political refugees from from foreign countries in the name of liberty. Or no, whatever. no, no. Only um, only political refugees who are seeking freedom. Yeah. Uh, about that, one of the elements of the reign of terror, and we'll get to that in a bit, is a, a decree that all foreigners in France should be arrested. So that did not oh. last very long. Um, <laughs> well, under this principle. constitution, some people who were born and lived in France their entire life are legally foreigners. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's another did thing. that count we'll, them? We'll have to talk about that in a bit because there are there are circumstances under this constitution in which your citizenship rights are suspended. Yeah, so or revoked fun. entirely. Yeah. But before we get to it's, that, it's funny because it's, it's they basically had the you know you, you can get disbarred if you commit a crime of moral turpitude. They basically have that for citizenship. Yeah, that's yeah. nuts. Anyway, before <laughs> we get into any of that though, to finish the the thought about why it didn't go into place, in addition to these foreign wars, and actually as a result of these foreign wars, they pass a law with sort of massive conscription of the the peasantry to to fill up the ranks of the army. Oh, that's illegal leads, under this constitution. Which leads to revolts because people don't want to be drafted into the army. So suddenly they're not only facing external enemies, they're also facing lots of internal enemies and they decide, you know what? Enter Robespierre, right? Basically, yes. So rather than transition to a new form of government, they're just like, nope, we're just going to ignore that we were supposed now to. Now is not the time for this. Exactly. We, we have time other for bigger, bigger fish to fry or rather bigger pate to simmer. I, I don't know. What's... Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Time for emergency powers. And that ends up, they basically, you know, in a very awkward aping of Roman tradition in terms of naming a, a dictator in times of emergency, they name a, a basically a dictatorial committee, actually two dictatorial committees. Yeah, that, that seems we'll to, to that be later. their main safeguard <laughs> against tyranny seems to be committees. Yeah. <laughs> that I don't understand why anybody, it's, it's funny because you know, I, I really think the emphasis of this segment is supposed to be the ways in which this constitution and other things like it in the French Revolution have very much retroactively colored the way that yeah. we read the American War of Independence. And, and they've really bled into and sort of infected politics and law ever since then to an extent they really shouldn't. But yep. one of the real qualities in this that I don't understand why anybody ever thought it, let alone why people still think it today, is that by putting things in committees, you're somehow safeguarding liberty. Yeah, why is a, a group of people that have the same interests as one another less likely to do tyrannical stuff from one guy? That makes it's no sense a, to me at all. Yeah, it's it's a good question. And that, you know, leads me into one of my points about what I think is a, a very noteworthy feature of a lot of this constitution is that it depends on near constant and very unwieldy forms of direct democracy. So actually referring legislation to the electorate directly, you know, one of the ways that a law can become a law under this system is it's proposed in the convention and then news of this law is sent to all of the sort of local voting places, basically. And if 10% of those voting places don't object to the law, it just automatically becomes law. There's no intervening, you know, mechanism for that. It's just law now. If 10% of them do, then it actually has to go back to the convention and get voted on. But so the only time they have to pass a bill by an actual vote is if 10% of these assemblies end up objecting to it. Otherwise, it just sort of becomes a law and they can skip straight to implementation. That's an awful system. Wow. Wild. 
Ah, gosh, we should probably just go through it structurally, but it's a, it's a bizarre combination yeah. of the oddly specific, like what you just went into, and yeah. the, uh, I don't know, we'll figure it out. Yeah, no, true, true, true. But in general, it really is set up to reward only a very specific subset of the people, basically people who have, like, you know, live in population centers and have a bunch of time to waste. Um, those are the only people yeah. who stand to benefit from this constitution. And yeah, I don't know it's, how... It, let's, I mean, those are sort of conclusions that we can draw from its structure. So let's, fair, let's dive fair, into fair, its structure fair. first. Yeah. So one of the things I found interesting about it, there's really no preamble. I guess the preamble no. is the French Republic is one and indivisible. Well, actually, I think technically the Declaration of the Rights of Man was supposed to be the preamble as a, you know, so a separate document serves oh. as the preamble, but... At least that's setting people up for the letdown that they're going to get. That's that's nice. Yeah. Um, we did an episode on the Declaration of Rights of Man and the Citizen a couple of weeks ago. Check it out if you haven't yet. That's episode 13. But yeah, so the first line is the French Republic is one and indivisible. Then after that, and I think this is notable. So before getting into their branches of government, the first thing they address is French citizenship. Yeah. So, you know, what what does that make the difference between this constitution and our constitution? Well, I think difference ought to be very striking and remarkable is that this is actually attempting to define the entire French social or political order. Yeah. This isn't just establishing a framework through which we delegate authority to somebody else. Now, I, I found a, actually somebody posted on Facebook. I read it before, but I was reminded of it today. A quotation from the first chief justice of our Supreme Court, John Jay. And what he had to say was... The Constitution only serves to point out that part of a people's business, which they think proper by it to refer to the management of persons therein designated. In other words, the purpose of the Constitution is to say that people would ordinarily have these powers, the ones that we're talking about in the Constitution. Purpose of the Constitution is to state the people and the manner in which those authorities are delegated to agents, essentially, who act on our behalf to fulfill certain functions. Yeah. That's what John Jay said our Constitution does. Clearly not the case here, since no, it defines who is and is not a citizen. And actually, even before that point, I do want to remark upon the statement that the French Republic is one and indivisible. That may sound just sort of like that in our sentiment. Pledge of Allegiance, David. Yes, but it actually, in this case, unlike in our Pledge of Allegiance, it's actually serving to point out one of the features of this system, which is that it's what's called a unitary state in, in opposition to the U.S., which is a federal state. Being a unitary state means it's a one-size-fits-all system. So the, the French constitution that we're looking at here is going to define how the very lowest levels of French government and, and social structure have to work. And that's a, another striking feature in contrast to the U.S. where yeah. and it's a, a great deal is left up to localities. But I was very frustrated they didn't spell out this structure at the front of the constitution, so I think we ought to jump to it now. But sure. <laughs> basically, they've got Soviets. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with what the, the term actually means, you know, the word Soviet and Soviet Union wasn't just sort of like a, a, that wasn't a nationality. It wasn't a geographical reference. And a Soviet originally was a reference to a kind of committee of workers. That's the, the workers idea. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So the, that's so that's the way that your society was structured is you had small groups of, say, your workplace and yep. they got together and they would appoint a delegate to the next level up that might be your industry in your city or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they would appoint delegates to the next level up and then so on and so forth all the way to the Central Committee Communist Party. Yeah. And that's where, you know, that's what Stalin headed up and 
Lenin headed yeah. up and Gorbachev and, the, and Khrushchev and all the rest of them. That was the Central Committee. And, you know, this, this system might sound appealing if, you know, if you're stupid, but <laughs> the problem with this system is even though it sounds very bottom up, it ends up being very top down because oh, each yeah. person in this chain is taking orders from the person at the top. Red China, the People's Republic of China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is still very much structured this way. It's slightly different, but essentially Soviet model. I had no idea the Soviets borrowed their model from the French Republic. Yeah, it's... The parallels are very striking. And, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the extent to which the Paris Commune, which is further down the line in French history, but the Paris Commune was very much an influence on later socialist thinkers. Paris Commune, I don't know a lot about its internal workings, but I have to assume it's probably drawing a lot of inspiration from the French Revolution. So, oh, yeah. you know, the, the chain remains unbroken, I guess you could say. Anyway. Yeah, so the way this constitution's written, they keep talking about all these different, I don't want to call them legislative bodies because really they're just sort of recursive chains of people who make recommendations to the actual Basically. legislature who's <laughs> the one at the very top. So yeah, I, 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 Soviets is the best word I have for them. So it, they, <laughs> yeah. they talk about each of the different levels, you know, the different levels in the hierarchy multiple times before they actually introduce what the heck they are or which yeah. one falls where in the hierarchy. But anyway, it goes commune. So in each and every commune of the Republic, there shall be a municipal administration. So commune organizes the municipal administration. So Paris commune, obviously drawn inspiration from that. And then in each and every district, there shall be an intermediate administration. So that's one level above commune. Communes appoint the, uh, the districts, or rather, I guess the administration of the commune appoints the district. And then yeah. each and every department, there shall be a central administration. So country is then further divided into departments. Those are the different levels. And obviously at the top, you have the National Assembly. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, they continue to use at least the language of, of departments to describe France's administrative divisions. Oh, we do that now. No, 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 not, not, in, the, not in like the sense of like a functionary division, like their geographic divisions, I believe are called. Yeah, we call them departments, uh, departments. because they're departments within the government, you know, an abstract yeah. mm -hmm. entity, not yeah. departments of the country. That makes no sense at all. Yeah. And it's, you know, I kept reading this and thinking maybe it's the translation is horrible and this makes more sense than it looks like it should. But no, French is closer to Latin than English. It should be easier to do legal stuff in yeah. French. It should be very, very easy to translate, especially legal language into English. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially considering, you know, a lot of our court language comes from French through the Normans. So. Right. It should be very yeah. easy to translate legal language into English. Yeah. I don't think we can blame translation on this one. Blame this one on translation, rather. Anyway, okay, so that's the structure. That's the general how their societies are organized. So that's how it's organized. At least that's how, you know, authority d is derived by those different hierarchical levels, you know, various emanations on the sort of chain of being that is France. But <laughs> let's go back to citizenship now. Mm -hmm. So... We, we got here, any man born and domiciled in France for 21, fully 21 years of age is considered to be a citizen, as well as every foreigner fully 21 years of age who is domiciled in France for one year. That's mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that something easily gained is also easily lost. Yeah. 
I love Mary's a French woman adopts a child. A disorder to an elderly person. Finally, every four. <laughs> I like how they just build in the stuff they care about. Anyway, how, how do you, how do you lose your citizenship, uh, David? Well, several ways. One, you can be naturalized to a foreign country, which you know that one makes sense. Fair enough. That one makes sense. You can have yeah, dual citizenship. You know, yeah. Well, which a lot of countries don't permit. The U.S. does, but another way you can lose your citizenship, is, excuse me, lose your citizenship is by accepting offices of state or favors which do not proceed from a democratic government. So basically, if you know a, a foreign king wants to make you an officer or you know give you some kind of benefit or position in government, you lose your citizenship. David, no, no, you're interpolating here. This just says offices or favors. Yeah, which which do not proceed this, from a democratic What government. constitutes a favor is not at all clear by the text. And it's not a pre-existing legal category. Foreign favor, that's not a thing. Yeah. It's and not if, a legal... you know the, if you know the history of the, of the French Revolution, you would know that a lot of the nobility of France fled at pretty early stage for reasons that become very clear in hindsight and sort of took up residence with neighboring kingdoms, you know, sort of organized courts in exile. Some of them hoped to, you know, help lead a military effort to retake the French throne for Louis before they killed him. But... It's very clearly that sort of person who's in mind here. Someone who has taken up residence even with a foreign king could probably be. My, my point is, it may be very clear what they have in mind. This constitution does not yeah. does not create a valid operating rule. No, but it, it, my it's, point. I mean, this is this is almost written for you to be able to select your political opponents, that, say that exactly. they've received favors from foreign governments, and then that, say that's that exactly what I meant. You, you know, you you can see the effort to target individuals this way. You got to be specific and stuff. And anything yeah. that's, you know, it's not just true of constitutions, but any rule of life that you actually want followed, you got to make it specific. Yeah. Anyway, next one is by sentencing with punishments that are dishonorable or strip the party of his civil rights until rehabilitation. Yeah. So if you, if you are sentenced for a crime... For something that was dishonorable, that's why I say I compare that to the crime of moral turpitude thing for lawyers. This is the one I compared to disbarment. Mm -hmm. You're not a citizen until after the period of your rehabilitation. So I guess they have built into this constitution that the criminal justice system is designed to rehabilitate, not to punish. Yeah. Which fits, you know, this seems like sort of the sort of system Maybe, you would want yeah. to strong arm people and to agree with that the government. That may be a topic for another podcast as well, uh, or another episode. Yeah, it, it just suffice it to say... You don't want to make it a crime to disagree with the government, because that's oh. what you do when you rehabilitate people. Oh, that's... but they they absolutely will want to make that a crime, and they will, but we'll get to that later. Okay, I'm saying we the people <laughs> generally don't want that. And as we yeah. read here, actually, that's the next section, but all popular sovereignty is derived from the people. Yeah. Actually, just the citizens, which so I guess it's not derived from any of the people that share different opinions from the government. We don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Anyway, so th those are ways you can lose your citizenship, but you can't, there are also ways in which your ability to exercise your rights are suspended. And there's two ways. One is by being accused, basically. If you've been accused indicted, of a crime. Indicted yeah. for a crime. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're not a citizen so, <laughs> or can't exercise your citizenship rights. I don't think that's subject to abuse at all. No. <laughs> Uh, and then the other is by a sentence in contumacium, which is basically... It's when somebody's convicted in absentia. So it's different from a you know, actually standing trial and being convicted. Yeah. When you can, when being indicted means you can no longer exercise your rights as a citizen, that is 
dangerous. <laughs> Very yeah, dangerous. We've, we've actually got a lot of that going on right now with, uh, you know, whatever your opinion of them may be, the people who are accused of insurrection and, and various actions on January 6, 2021, what's going on there is absolutely horrendous. If you look into that, I don't want to get too much into that in this podcast because we've not filed cases on behalf of any of the uh, January 6 defendants or entered ourselves into the records of the court. But that, so it, until we do that, I don't want to you know get too public in our statements on that, but some real abuses going on there. Yeah. And it's also reminiscent of another thing that we've talked about several times on this show, uh, the statements of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, in which she said that anyone who's been accused of a violent crime, there's probably good enough evidence that we can't let them be bailed. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't want the state of having been accused to be a valid reason to strip someone of their rights. No, because there's a very low bar for accusing someone. Very. Yeah. I mean, it's it's literally just one guy chooses to do it. Yeah. Anyway, we, we got to keep it moving because we're not even going to get anywhere close oh, to no. the okay. end of this so topic if we don't. <laughs> we'll probably go. We're doing metric hours today. So uh, popular <laughs> sovereignty includes all the French citizens. So all the people we just described are going to be sovereign. It directly appoints its deputies. Deputies is not defined here. That, but it, what they mean by that is basically uh, members of the legislature. But you're right. It's not defined. But that isn't true because the, because the citizens do not directly elect the members of the legislature. They directly elect the, the people that run their Soviet. And then their Soviet elects the people that... Yeah. As I interpret it, this is a statement about that even though the actual voters don't directly elect the deputies, uh, the sovereignty of the people does because it is validly transferred at every stage or something. That's not I, directly, though. You could say that you could say <laughs> the citizenry, you know, the, the popular sovereignty appoints all deputies, but that's not direct. Yeah, no, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm trying my best to understand what this is getting at. All right. Anyway, it, it next is it delegates to its electors the choice of administrators, public arbiters, and judges for criminal and appellate courts. So, in other words, just a naked contradiction of the last thing that they said. You know, you can't both have the public directly appoint all deputies and then have the very next line be that various ones are appointed by electors. That is different, very clearly. And it deliberates how many. Law. How many of these things are you planning on actually reading? Because there's well, I just you know them. there's a lot of contradictions in here. I wanted to hit some of them. So here we've got population is the sole basis of national representation. We already know that's not true. We already know there's regional representation from the fact that the country is divided into different districts, right? And different yeah. departments. So I, so I, so representation is both geographical and based on population. Yeah, I assume so that, what they that's meant just not there, true. This is a contradiction. I assume what that what they meant there was that no one was supposed to be appointed to represent the interests of a region. Like they were elected in a certain in a certain region by the population there, but they were supposed to just represent the interests of France. Again, going back to the unitary state, no one is supposed to be a delegate. Everybody of, acts on behalf of everybody else. They're not exactly. acting on behalf of their exactly. district or department. Okay, but that isn't, you're probably right, but that isn't what it says. And that's not no, no, how no. it would be interpreted by any court. No. And it, it's also, you know, even aside from that issue, which you're right, it's completely defective on a legal point, from a legal point of view, rather. It's also worth noting that France was composed of very different regions, much like the US, with very different kinds of interests, in part 
because basically the whole middle of the country was more or less uninhabited. So you pretty much had a northern coast facing the Atlantic and a southern coast facing the Mediterranean with massively different interests. And it's it's a horribly thought through. Well, that's system. the problem, David. People yeah. <laughs> want different things. Right. So they're not supposed to act on behalf of their constituents because, well, I guess they are because their constituents are all the citizens of France. Yeah. So everybody that hasn't taken a favor from a foreign government or and, and, been indicted uh, for a crime. To paraphrase Anakin Skywalker, someone needs to make them agree and that someone is that's gonna just be so. committees of various kinds. It's going to be various committees and committees <laughs> of committees and committees of yes. committees of committees. Yes. Anyway. Yes. So here's another contradiction. The election is decided by absolute majority. And then a paragraph later, let's skip one paragraph, the very next one. If the first return does not produce an absolute majority, a second rule shall be held and a vote taken between two citizens who have obtained the most votes. Mm -hmm. That's a naked contradiction. Yep. You know, and I think you get what they're trying to do. And it's just very clear. Okay, that here's, the, they here's don't. the provision you were talking. Every deputy belongs to the whole nation. I wrote a question mark next to that. I didn't know what the heck that meant, but you're right. It means they're all members at large. None of them are. Yeah. None of them represent their geographical area. Yeah. You, Sorry, I, I think, interrupted you, David. Yeah, throughout this whole thing, though, especially with all the procedural elements, which are some of the worst, as you've pointed out, I think you get a sense of what they thought they were doing, and they just didn't know how to actually express it in a way that was logically consistent and would, you know be accessible to any kind of legal interpretation because it isn't they just made this stuff up is yeah, why on, on they the just fly, sat basically. there and then speculated what would be a good way to run a government yeah well and, you know we don't like it when there's one king guy in charge so let's not ha ever have one person deciding anything let's make everything decided by groups okay we'll make sure yeah. that's true <laughs> what that it's just yeah. you know you, you can see you can see the reasoning here it's oh we, we didn't like it when yeah uh, each of us only appeared on behalf of our estate at the national, you know, at the national yeah. level. So we want this to mm -hmm. be subdivided. So yeah, okay, let's insert a number of levels in between. So things have to go through multiple levels before they can get to the top. You can see the, how they got to some of this stuff. It's just, yeah, bad. it's not like, workable. It's, you know, if, if a third grader gave me this, well, firstly, I'd be fairly impressed by their just their fluency in writing. Vo but secondly, I'd probably yeah. give them an F still because this is such a bad constitution. Yeah, it basically it reads like a list of grievances that someone tried to convert into a system just very poorly. <laughs> yeah, one guy shouldn't be deciding things. All the people should always be represented. There shouldn't be regional interests represented in any, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Here's yeah. a funny section. I like this one. I, I can't imagine what grievance this is trying to solve. Maybe you know better, David, but it says, in the case of a tie, so this is a tie when somebody's being elected. <laughs> oh, this one's great. I love this one. The elder shall have the choice either to hold another vote or to be declared the winner. In the case yeah. where both citizens are of equal age, the decision shall be made by lot. Uh-huh. So you don't get... Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, did, so what's... Who who inserted that and why? I, I Maybe they sort of had a um, a wannabe Ben Franklin type among them, the sort of an elder statesman type who was like, you know, if I'm ever in a tie, I want to get it just because I'm older. <laughs> and then, but then somebody like, else said, yeah, that might be good, but you should have the option at least to hold yeah, another vote. And, and then someone else was like, but what if two people are exactly the same age? And they're like, we'll flip a coin. <laughs> I don't. The fact that it gives them the option, though, is so it's, strange. To it's me. very strange. I don't know who. Yeah, I don't understand this one. 
I'm not sure there's a specific reason for this other than maybe they just thought, well, you know, with age comes wisdom. And so therefore the, the wiser would know what to do, but we don't want to dictate to him. But then I don't know why you wouldn't just appoint the oldest man in France and then work your way down from there to fill every vacant office. But yeah, that's <laughs> honestly, that's I, I don't I don't want to say it's better than this, but it might be because that's at least a workable <laughs> system where we know who's going to be in charge. Yeah. The issue would be that in France, if you, even if you did it that way, though, you just fill up one committee with all of the oldest and ostensibly best guys. And then every committee after that would just be worse and worse. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Nobody holds like, the office old elections that actually on May has. Day. Yeah. So the old elections on May Day, May 1st, they hold elections every year. And I guess everybody's reelected every year, including their judges. Yeah. Uh, it makes specific provision for judges being reelected yes. every year. Yeah, I believe every single office is held every year, uh, or rather up for election every year. And that, yeah, that, the fact that it includes judges is a recipe for absolute disaster. And, you know, hopefully people who've listened to our podcast yeah, I'm, I'm not sure judges should know yeah, why. Yeah, I'm sure judges will be totally impartial. impartial and they yeah. won't at all care whether or not the <laughs> assembly that put them in place is going to do it again. Yeah. Just so somebody's, the, I, there's, there is no conceivable way under this system that an organization like the Lexerex Institute could exist. No. There's no way you can sue the government under this system. And it has not made any provision for that. Governments in this system has to be assumed to be something that's always doing what's right. Yeah. Because, no, no, it's, you know, judges are going to be the most partial people in the world. It's literally unimpeachable. And I mean that in every sense of that word. <laughs> there's yeah. basically, there's no recourse for government abuse. Other than to, we should be very proud of the fact that we've impeached the president twice. Yeah, other <laughs> that's the, a big actually, deal. The, the recourse in this context, you know, and is, still peacefully transferred amount of power too. That's huge in the history of the world. Yeah, the actually, I guess the 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 recourse you have under the system is to work outside the law, and that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, just don't follow it, which is what they did. So yeah. And I, to to take a, a brief step back, because that issue of electing everybody every year. One of the things that rapidly sort of undoes all of the attempts that the French revolutionaries made to implement a workable system was that they were all in Paris to meet together for the legislature. And they realized there were a lot of angry people without a lot to do in Paris who had very particular opinions that weren't always very well formed. And they were more than happy to show up in a mob. So, you know, rapidly. Yeah, that was the, rest the, the Paris mobs is what they were known for. You know, yeah. Governor Morris writes about that a lot, too, in his, his memoirs. Because yeah. he was the, the ambassador to France during Washington's administration. Yeah. Uh, he, he did not, not a big fan of the mobs. It made him late to the opera, no. so on and so forth. And so public, so. sort of public loud opinion being an undue influence is already a problem by the time they're drafting this constitution. If every single office is elected every single year, including your judges, you're only going to amplify that. Yeah. This seems designed to amplify Mob yeah. rule, but yes, I, that may be the goal. I don't know, but <laughs> it, yeah. it seems unlikely to have been by accident. Okay, so what else did I want to draw attention to? Um, oh, I, I found it interesting that a quorum of the National Assembly is de is defined as two hundred members being present. You know, they can't pass any laws unless two hundred members are present. They don't say how many members the National Assembly is supposed to have. It could well, have any number of members. Yeah, because it's it's constitutionally fixed according to population. So 200 right. could so end up being... It could have 20,000 members if France got yeah. big enough. Right. So 200, 200 could would be, be a, quorum. a minuscule proportion eventually. Um, I'm not sure 
what that would... I'm, I can't do the math well enough in my head. I've, I've never seen a quorum defined as anything other than a proportion of the, the voting strength. That's, that's just very, very clearly written by people who are not familiar with this sort of thing, uh, which... Yeah. You know, they, they, if, if they weren't going to put lawyers on, the, on whatever committee approved this, maybe they should have consulted a couple. <laughs> I just, pro people probably would have done it pro bono. You know, yeah. I don't think, you know, you could have found someone to do it for free. Yeah. France today has about 60 million people. And I'm I, if I recall correctly, the, the number of people per deputy to the convention was supposed to be 40,000, which would mean there would be 1,500 people in the legislature today. And if they were still yeah, following that's, this, that's a pretty small quorum. About a seventh of the legislature being there is enough for a quorum. Which, by the way, people complain about that in the American system, you know, that, that there are more people to each representative now. This is the alternative, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the way that the, the Chinese Communist Party does it. They just have tons and tons and tons of people in their legislature. As a practical matter, what that does is it destroys parliamentary debate. Yeah. Because you have to have very strict rules about who can speak, how long they can speak, under what circumstances they can do it, or you'll never get anything done. Uh, it, it's... You really don't want that in your system. Much better to have larger portions of the population that are represented. And frankly, you know, if we don't like that, if we don't like that each our vote doesn't go as far per person, push more stuff to the state level. Yep. I mean, yeah. that's I don't understand why there's such a a lot of the same people complaining about that are people pushing to federalize everything. I don't understand that at all. Well, because they basically sense. want to be a unitary state. <laughs> yeah, because they're great. You know, this is yeah. the model and it's don't Worked you want so well. one, David? Boy, yeah. I can't believe it's not America, you know? It's, it's well, and the, the, what's, what's crazy to me is virtually every, you know, quote unquote democratic, because, you know, obviously that term has other meanings now than it, than it did at one point, but virtually every democratic country on earth is a unitary state these days. And it's, it's so yeah. unwieldy. Like, the drawbacks are so obvious. I don't get why everyone wants to do it all the time, but anyway. Yeah, especially in large countries like like yeah. France or the United States. At the time, mm -hmm. France would have been much larger than the United States. A lot of this stuff is just phrased in a way that invites abuse, like that minutes have to be printed, minutes shall be printed from these assemblies. What about and disseminated? You know, it says it yeah. says that national assemblies shall be public, but it doesn't say how many people will be allowed in or who will be allowed in. It says members must be granted permission to speak in the order in which they requested it, but it doesn't say what the procedure for making a request is or who can make a request. You know, stuff like that. You know, our constitution guards very, very well against that kind of thing. It's where it does confer broad general rights, it does so in language that had accepted usage under the common law. That's not going on here. This is stuff they just invented on the spot. No one's going to know how to apply this stuff, and it's going to get abused because you get bad people in any government, right? You're never going to have a government that only has good people. The fact that it's electing its representatives doesn't mean they're going to do a good job every time, even if they can yeah. replace them year after year, because we know most incumbents tend to get reelected, especially with a government as Leviathan, Leviathanic? I don't know the, the title <laughs> of that, but... Uh, I think just Leviathan. Leviathan. I think I think it's it's also just Leviathan. I'm pretty sure it's also. Yeah, but especially in a government as Leviathan as this one, yeah, you can pretty much guarantee incumbents are going to get reelected. Oh yeah, <laughs> That's, hard not to. Yeah. Okay, so this is I really like this section. This is about the legislative body. Included under the general title of law are acts of the legislative body concerning, and then it has a list. I just find that kind of hilarious because rather than saying the legislative powers here are described shall be vested in, it's saying a law is defined as, and then it lists all the different things they can legislate on. 
And of course, yeah. all of these laws are going to be national. And the list, I'm pretty sure, is intended to be exhaustive. It seems that, and especially because there's no restrictions. So let, let yeah. me read the list. Civil and criminal legislation. Well, okay. So if I'm, in, I'm say I'm, an, I'm a senator, they didn't have those. But say I'm somebody trying to legislate and I want to look for whether or not a law is going to be constitutional. Yeah. Hmm. Well, is it civil or criminal? Yep. Yeah. It's one I'm of those. good. The law is constitutional. <laughs> yeah. But then it also goes on. General administration of the revenues and orderly expenditures of the republic. So orderly expenditures doesn't have any limitation on what it can be spent upon. Uh, state property, the standard weight, stamp, and denomination of monies, the nature, amount, and collection of taxes, the declaration of war, every new general distribution of French territory, public schooling, mm -hmm. public honors in memory of great men. Yep. I think that's supposed to be everything. I, I don't think there's any restriction on what they can legislate regarding. It, hard to imagine one. Yeah, if you, if you watched last week, or listen, you don't watch these, but if you listen to last week's episode, <laughs> or like a lot of our episodes, you know, there's a big debate over whether or not various things qualify as commerce between the states and the United right. States, because that's probably the most permissive power that Congress has, is to regulate commerce between states. So if you can spin something to be a regulation of commerce between states, then Congress validly has authority to do it. You yep. would never have arguments like that in this system. No. Their legislature can do essentially anything. It's omnipotent. Yeah, because it's, as you know, those who've listened to past episodes about the French Revolution will remember, it's supposed to represent the general will, and the general will is always right. So, yeah. Also, and then to carry into effect these laws, we have the Executive Council, which, you know, in America, for comparison, we have how many presidents, David? Just the one. And a, and a vice president. And a vice president, yes. But yeah, those are the, the executives. Not those the regular executive president. officers. Everybody else is sort of hired by the president, yeah. you know, the agents that work for them. But we, yeah, we basically got two, and only one of them does anything. <laughs> How many did they have under this constitution? I forget if it was 12 or 24. But 24. 24. Two yeah. dozen. I knew it was some, some number divisible by 12. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why, the executive is supposed to be the person or body responsible for carrying the laws into effect. Why would you give that to a 24-person committee? Uh, Do you want none of your laws to ever be enacted? Because one executive looks too much like a king, and that's unpopular now. But then they go out of their way to make sure that the executive <laughs> can't do anything except, you know, where is it? Here. The legislative body shall determine the duties of the municipal officers and administrators. That's the executive. The rules governing their subordination and the penalties they may incur. They may not, under any circumstances, alter acts of the legislative body nor stop their execution. So a good half of this section is dedicated to saying the executive doesn't have any ability to exercise discretion over the laws. Right. It purely enforces them. You know, you could have accomplished that very efficiently. We did it in our system. You just say, well, and also, you know, the way this is phrased is totally unenforceable and ambiguous because what is an alteration? of an act of the legislative body. You know, they're always gonna say they're not doing that. They're gonna say it was only feasible to enforce it against this one group. We can't enforce yeah. it against the other. We haven't altered it, we're just enforcing it in a way that's practical based on, you know, what discretion we have as an executive. Not at all clear if that's permitted under this constitution. The way that we phrase this in our constitution, much more simply, we said that the executive has to faithfully execute the laws that Congress passes. We include in a good faith provision, 
You know, if, if Congress, if a member of Congress can bring a lawsuit against the president saying that, you know, you didn't enforce this law the way that we wrote it, the court would look at whether or not the president appears to have operated in good faith. It makes a lot of sense. But this is a system which I, in which I don't think they expected tribunals to ever be hearing much of anything other than just finding people guilty of crimes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and yeah, the, so the, one of the noteworthy features of all this is despite the attempt to have a separation of powers, it's essentially a legislative tyranny. And that's, you know, what the sections that you just read are a pretty good example of that where, you know. Yeah. And if you're very, very lucky, you may get an executive council where they just argue all the time and never execute any of those laws. More likely than not, you're going to get one or two very powerful personalities on that council and they're yeah. just going to dominate it. Which is, in fact, what happens even though they don't actually use this constitution. But, yeah, I and mean, that's what and, happened in the Soviet Union too, right? Yeah. As, as far as I, I mean, can tell too- Stalin the, was the not only, a dictator. Um, Stalin was head of the Politburo. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the only actual sort of positive business that they assign to the executive is appointing ambassadors and negotiating treaties. I'm not sure there's anything else in here. Yeah. And so I guess you know, we should probably finish by... So I'm a citizen of France. Somehow I've managed to retain that. Nobody's, no foreign governments have given me any favors. I've never been accused of any crimes, despite being politically active and not really liking this government, which is no small miracle, but I'm a citizen of France. <laughs> yeah. And I would like to change this constitution because I don't think it's very good. And I think there are ways that we can improve it. So how does amending this constitution work? Well, if in one half of the departments plus one, because the departments are the, the highest level Soviet, basically. Uh, yeah. The regularly constituted primary assemblies request the revision of the Constitutional Act or the amendment of some of its articles. The legislative body, that's the central one, shall be required to convoke all the primary assemblies of the Republic to ascertain if there are grounds for a national convention. So the legislature's got to form an exploratory committee yeah. where they call all the different assemblies, collect information, and then ultimately make the decision on their own. So if the central government doesn't think that an amendment is called for, there is zero requirement that that amendment be considered. Yep. It's good stuff. <laughs> it's awful, David. It's so bad. And oh. as I was reading this, I was like, why the heck are we talking about this? And then I saw like, oh, gee, I've seen that in a later constitution. Gee, I've seen a justice of the Supreme Court thinking this way in an opinion, reading section of our constitution as if they're trying to do the same thing that happened here. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what people complain about the Electoral College because it doesn't work this way in the United States. Basically, yeah. <laughs> people yeah. complain about about a way we draw districts because it doesn't work this way. I mean, they can't take for granted that our system should work like this awful system. Yeah. Why do they want yeah. that? I, I can only conclude because of a concerted conspiracy of Illuminati over the past 200 <laughs> years to impose the system of the French upon the world. Well, in a manner of speaking. That, that, that is um, a joke, folks. I mean, I, I know that... <laughs> That's that there, is a joke. I, there I don't, is a, why, um, why? Why? Why do they assume that? There is a massive watershed moment that comes with the French Revolution, and especially after you know this whole house of cards collapses, and they get a guy called Napoleon who just decides he's in charge of everything. But people like him this time, um, and they go off conquering like three quarters of Europe. But there is a watershed moment where, basically, before the French it wouldn't Revolution, wouldn't be Waterloo, would it? Watershed. What? Oh, that's. I don't like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> this moment, though, where it goes from people prior to the French Revolution tended to think of the term liberty 
in terms of traditional rights that they exercised. And in some cases, you know, yeah. they were messy. They didn't really make sense. There were some plenty were contradictory. But generally speaking, people thought you of their speak of the rights and liberties of Englishmen. You know, that's yeah, or you know, or uh, you know, Hollanders or Bavarians or even or citizens, whatever humans. You could say yeah. mm -hmm. human liberty. That's but it was something that traditionally your society afforded you. It was some you know something where it was like everyone before us had this right. Stop trying to infringe on this right. With the French Revolution, it goes away from that and toward the idea that anything that is traditional and old is probably superstitious and stupid. Instead of instead of trying to keep in touch with sort of traditional elements of your culture, and you know, they could change over time. They often did. People negotiated for enhanced versions of their liberties all the time. Right. But rather than try to keep in touch with that stream, people thought that didn't make any sense. Instead, we should just be smart and rational and think up the perfect system to replace it. And it, you know, it tends to look like this, where you don't think yeah. about the actual situation on the ground or how people actually do things. You're just like, that's you know so what, true. this has a, a certain kind of geometric neatness to it. And therefore, yeah, I, I think it's that's good. it. That's it. You know, it, it's they they almost don't want government to be tied to the people that it's governing. They yeah. want it to be something that can exist in the abstract. And the yeah. way that you do that is sort of reducing it to mathematics. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and what I find what I find interesting about this constitution, actually, I, I want to finish on this last section. The French Republic respects loyalty, courage, the elderly. Filial piety and misfortune. Uh -huh. It entrusts its constitution to the care of all the virtues. Yeah. You don't get any of those things by saying them. Right. You're not going to get a government that cares about those things. You're going to get a government that cares a lot about its own power and getting reelected. Yeah. You have to make sure you have structures in place to protect these things. You know, it, it's, it's, it reminds me of a comment that I hear repeated a lot from people on a, one end of the political spectrum who talk about how, you know, the American constitution only works for a virtuous and moral people. If you stop having a virtuous and moral people, the constitution will stop working. You know, they talk about that, that can get into some kind of ugly areas about demographic shift and, you know, that the yeah. people have substantially changed since the constitution was ratified. I don't think that's true at all. A good system is one that works when we recognize what people's base instincts are, yeah. And protect against abuses anyway. You know, I, I will say the American Constitution does not work if some people are not virtuous. Some people have to care about what's right in yeah. order for the Constitution to continue to work. But it doesn't have to be a majority. It doesn't have to be more than like, you know, a fraction of a percent, frankly, because yeah. we have legal protections in place for rights. All people have to do is be willing to step up and defend those rights, oftentimes through the courts, which is what Lex Rex is here to help you do. You know, you can hire us for legal representation on those things, but we actually don't need to have widespread virtue in our society for our constitution to function properly. We don't need people who are culturally suited to the constitution that we ratified. Yeah. No, it, you know, you need, as you said, you need some people because, you know, you need to find people who are suited to be judges. You need people who are suited to lead. But more than anything, you need people to be aware of what's going on and ready to stand up for their own interest, not even necessarily well, people, other people. The people are going to elect bad representatives. Yeah. A lot of the time. They may elect many good ones, but they are, they're going to elect a lot of bad ones. Even yeah. the majority may be good, but they're always going to elect bad ones. It's inevitable. 
Right. You have to have a system that protects you when that happens. Yep. What you can't go without, what is absolutely imperative to the functioning of a free society, is an educated republic. They yeah. have to know what their constitution says. They have to know what their rights are. That's something that you can't lose. And that's something that the past four decades of basically no, I'm sorry, four generations, past 80 years really, of no constitutional education has debatably put in jeopardy. And that's a huge part of why Lex Rex exists. But anyway, that's the French Constitution, 1793. I think you tortured me by having me read that. I was not a big <laughs> fan of it. No, it's not very good. Uh, there were a couple other things I wanted to say. I don't remember what they were now, but that's that's well, how. Anyway, we've spent probably a little too much time on it to begin with. But anyway, as we've mentioned, they never actually use this thing because when they were you supposed to... It's not you. There's contradictions in it. This is... Yeah. This is not well, usable. I mean, it's like the, the folks that say that true communism has never been tried. You know, that we never had a true Marxist system. Right, because Marx makes predictions that are false. Yeah. Well, Marx says that economies work in ways that they, in fact, do not work. You can't anyway. have a true Marxist system. You can't have this constitution. Anyway, to, uh, to rephrase, they never even make a good faith effort to implement this system because instead they say, you know what, it's emergency time. Let's have some emergency powers. And I think that should be, you know, that can be a general word of warning as well. It rarely works out well. You end up getting things like, you know, something called the reign of terror. <laughs> um, but the the same the same sort of tendencies that we've noted to to mob rule and to popular pressure just keep getting worse, basically. And they start demanding that efforts be made against counter-revolutionaries. And that's where that, that thing I mentioned earlier about arresting all the foreigners comes in, because the mobs are now suspicious of foreigners since they're at war with foreign countries, they're concerned about spies, all this stuff. So they end up implementing a law that they call the Law of Revolutionary Government, or more formally, the Law of 14 Free Mayor, which is one of the new metric months. So the huh. French Republic- Oh, they're still using those at this point? Yeah, no, they were still trying to use the revolutionary calendar. Oh, no, that was in effect for a couple of years. Yep. So. Oh, that's bad. My gosh, <laughs> they must have been very tired by this point. I excuse the whole thing. I take back every word I said about this constitution. <laughs> so anyway, this law, though. The you know, law they, they were working nine-day work weeks. Yep. Yep. Anyway, so this law comes in and basically... You know, I've, I've actually been unable to find direct text for this law. Everyone, for some reason, only posts commentary about this law. They don't actually tell you what it says, but apparently the practical effect of it, basically, is to... If you can find it, you, you get... Um, we'll send you a free t-shirt. Send us, send us this Fair law, enough. the text yeah. of it, we'll send you a free t-shirt. So yeah, so again, it's the law of 14 free mayor or the law of revolutionary government. And it's if... We'll, we'll count Google Translate. If you find it in French and Google Translate, it will count that. Yeah, True. Anyway, the, the practical effect is that all executive power and functionally all legislative power as well is invested in just two committees, the Committee of Public Safety and the Committee of General Security. Those and sound really of, similar. Yes, they do. But basically, the, these are supposed to be the wartime government, you know, for the state of emergency. And they basically suspend all of the subordinate administrative levels freedom in every in every way. Basically, you can only act on direct orders at this point. So... As we mentioned, committees tend to be dominated by a couple of personalities. And in this case, it's a guy named or they do Maximilian. Nothing. Both, both consequences are equally likely. That's, <laughs> yeah. They either do nothing or they're dominated by one guy. Yeah. So Robespierre, who you may remember for being the guy who said that you can't possibly assume that uh, the king might be 
found innocent because if if that's the case then the revolution has failed so you have to assume he's guilty uh that guy ends up in charge not assume he he is legally guilty yes know? yes yeah he, he can't <laughs> he be presumed case, innocent yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah anyway among other things one of the things that the, this regime does is it quadruples the size basically of the revolutionary tribunal or you know in other words the the court that the legislature had set up to prosecute enemies of the revolution and they end up killing a lot of people to make a very long story short that gets worse and worse until oh did you get a guillotine sound effect i did not but we can find it in post added okay Uh, they implement another new law and this is the last one we we need that for this series david we that's that's fair that's imperative especially for this section because the the law of 20 we should do it for transitions and every just constantly Okay. The last law that we're going to talk about in, in France for this episode is called the Law of 22 Prairial. That's another one of their revolutionary months. And basically, it, it what it does functionally is lower the burden of proof uh, for the revolutionary tribunals. So, among other things, and you know, it, it makes a bunch of new capital offenses. Some of them are pretty typical things, you know, aiding and abetting enemies. But it includes things like misleading the people or inspiring discouragement or what? disseminating uh, false I'm not news. even going to make the noise for that one. What? <laughs> yeah, like b- damaging public morale, basically. And wow. one of them, and right. this, sound, this sounds pretty familiar, uh, disseminating false news. So fake news media. <laughs> fake news, chop- okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's what the media was worried about the whole past administration. They thought they were going to get the guillotine. <laughs> Anyway, um, and now, now it all makes sense. There's a bunch more to this law, but this one in particular, this this provision strikes me as, as, you know, very strongly. If either material or moral proofs exist so that, you know, hard evidence or otherwise, <laughs> apart from the attested proof, there shall be no further hearing of witnesses unless apart such formality attested. appears Wow, this is, this is where people get their concept of evidence, too. You know, remember yeah. that we read that, that hot take several weeks back now where somebody said that Testimony is not evidence? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Wow. So, so if, if material or moral, so if we really feel like you did it, we don't need to hear witnesses anymore. We can convict you on that. Yeah, basically. Like if the tribunal determines that the evidence heard so far is conclusive, you can't present any more, basically. And choppy choppy. Well, and I'm skipping over a lot of, of, of the history here and the text of this law as well. But this, I found this, this was just insane to me. Between the passing of that law and sort of the downfall of Robespierre, and we'll get into that very briefly in a second, there are 49 days. So a month and a half after this law is passed, basically, the whole government comes crashing down. During that time, 1,376 people were sentenced to death by the Revolutionary Tribunals. My gosh, how many of them were executed? 28 a day. No, it, how many were executed of that group? All of them. That's, that's the number of executions. They carried out every sentence? Yes. Wow. Yeah. 28 people a day going to the guillotine under loosened rules of evidence, basically. Oh, my gosh. And so Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities has an account of the revolutionary trials. And it's really not an exaggeration. If you haven't read that, that's worth reading. Another great. And this is a movie I actually can recommend. It's a Terry Gilliam movie called The Adventures of the Baron Munchausen. And that movie has a character played by Jonathan Price, who sort of typifies the French bureaucrat in this era. And a lot of the stuff you're saying, you know, it's that's the kind of things he does in that. It's probably the best depiction 
of a French bureaucrat I've seen yeah. in film. It's kind of a silly I, movie, but it's fun and that part's accurate. So yeah. Anyway, so understandably, following accurate all this, to the spirit at least, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily the the mechanisms or anything, but probably as you can imagine, at, at this point, other people in the government are starting to get worried because Robespierre is basically using this as a, a way of rooting out anyone he's suspicious of. Again. You can hear some echoes of the Soviets in that, too. And basically, they get together and they say, you know what? We need to arrest Robespierre before he kills us all. And so they announce, you know, one day he comes into the, the convention. They announce that they're, you know, basically going to investigate his conduct. And he seems to have had a stroke during this event. It's not entirely clear what happens, but something goes wrong. He then later tries to commit suicide after they do arrest him, but someone, you know, sort of prevents him in the middle of it, and he just ends up shooting himself in the jaw. He's unable to speak. They put him on trial with about two dozen of his colleagues using the same apparatus, sentenced to death. He's executed. And according to some historians, the crowds cheer for 15 minutes after his death. Yeah, that that's a... You ever read the... Uh the Thomas Carlyle account of Robespierre's execution? I have not. Oh, it's excellent. Uh, we'll, we'll put up a mm. link in the description if you want to read that. It's, it's, he writes it almost like it's a novel. That's, that's a really yeah. good history of the French Revolution, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. It's worth reading. And, and by the way, earlier this week, David and I and a few others just met to discuss new books that we're going to be putting on offer from the Lex Rex Institute, which you can receive for donations. One book that we did not discuss that I've just made an executive decision we're going to add is <laughs> Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France. Yeah, that is, if you fair. want to continue listening to this series, really give that book a read. I think it's one of the most prescient books about politics, political theory, legal theory ever written. Uh, Edmund Burke's a big hero of ours. You know, he's the one that tried to urge the British government to make some kind of deal with the American colonies so they wouldn't leave. He was sort of the lone voice pushing for that. That's a great speech too. Maybe our copy will have that in it. But yeah, give that one a look. That one's worth checking out. You know, they, they, so Edmund Burke wrote about the revolution in France when uh, he, he was asked by one of the clubs. You remember which club it was, David? I don't. We talked about these, these clubs were very politically influential in France though. So yep. they, they write to Edmund Burke, a man who has famously spoken on behalf of the American colonies, famously spoken on behalf of some of the colonies in India. So famously sort of viewed as being opposed to the status quo in Britain in favor of more, well, quasi-revolutionary movements or what have been thought of as revolutionary in France. So they, they say, Edmund Burke, will you please sort of endorse us? Will you pledge your commitment to our cause for revolution? And Edmund Burke starts his book by writing back and says, I'm sorry that it took me so long to get back to you, but I regret to inform you that I cannot endorse your revolution. Here's my reasons why. And what follow are his book about why the revolution in France is not at all like the American Revolution, not at all like the Glorious Revolution in Britain, and why men who care about freedom should not countenance it. So it's worth a read. Unfortunately, that's going to have to conclude our program for today. We are not going to have time for our customary hot take section. We did end up going a little bit over and we're not actually using metric hours, as I suggested earlier. Although, if you do have hot takes that you'd like one of us to respond to on the air in the future, you can send those to us at info at lexrex.org. That's info at lexrex.org. Yeah, and just make sure in the subject line to say, hot takes. If there's one particular host that you want to respond to, just make sure you indicate that somewhere in the message. Otherwise, 
It's probably going to be David presenting it to me, but we're perfectly happy to do it the other way around. That sounds like a lot of fun. As always, if you are starved for more LexRex Institute content, you can check us out on our YouTube channel. That's LexRex Institute on YouTube. Or you can go to our website, LexRex.org, and read some of our written articles there. Or just check out old podcast episodes. Really, any of those options is available. Yeah, and as always, we also appreciate contributions. So if you do feel moved to contribute, really, every penny helps. So you can do that at LexRex.org slash donate and pick up one of our fine books or t-shirts. That's going to conclude this for today. Uh, as always, podcast releases on Mondays, so check back next Monday, and we'll see you again then. Thanks for listening.